Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England. Episode 291, Queen and Court. But this week, I thought we should have a bit of context, why don't we? Over the next many episodes, many, many episodes, I'm going to warble on about many things that get done, often from the top down, though we'll have a deal of bottom-up too at some point, because it's always important to have a bottom in every podcast. But... As we talk about privy councils and courts and the tickling of necks of the Queen's squeeze, it might be good to have some sort of idea about how things all hung together, how all the political machinations and pursuit of power translated itself onto the road. How did the Elizabethan government work in outline? How and where were decisions made? And how much talk did it have? Did it basically work? The government of England in Tudor times was like an ogre, or like an onion, I might say, layer upon layer. Although actually it's a lot more complicated than an onion, so forget that analogy, it's more like a matrix. It relied on structures and hierarchies, bureaucracy sort of thing. So we will talk constantly about the Queen, her court, the Privy Council, and we'll spend much time in those structures. But, as we've talked about in the Strand on social episodes, for the vast majority of people, for the vast majority of time, these institutions were a long way away, and the province of the very grand indeed. However, that does not mean that Tudor government was arcane or distant. Au contraire, mon brave, au contraire. It was ever-present, close at hand, in the form of the parish, and in particular, the law. It's been effectively argued that the process of law with local tithing groups, grand jurors, local JPs, travelling assized judges, allowed Tudor communities to influence up the chain of command and play a direct role in the development of policy and the formation of the Tudor state, not just to receive orders and control from on high. Much government was deeply local, but it was connected to the centre Central institutions such as the Privy Council could do no more to implement its policies than communicate its demands through a stream of letters to local governors and magistrates. It had to take account of the information coming back, or simply those components in that information stream would not comply and nothing would be achieved. I said matrix, not onion though, because there is another way in which centre and local come together, through personal connection, status and honour. Because alongside and across the machinery of government and bureaucracy lay the traditional framework of personal influence and lordship. The men who sat on central institutions, and they were men, were at the same time local governors or had local governors in their affinity network with mutual obligations. 
And so personal relationships influenced how effective was the implementation of policy. This was particularly true in the South and Midlands of England. So members of the court, like Cecil, were JPs in Lincolnshire and Northamptonshire. In fact, one of the things you'll learn about Cecil is that he had a very dirty finger as a result of putting it in so many pies. The man never slept and was a warrior. But more of that later. So this double influence was widespread on the council, local influence and the position they had on the Privy Council. So the Earl of Bedford was on the Privy Council, but he was also a JP in Devon and Cornwall. Francis Knowles was a JP in Oxfordshire. Robert Dudley was a JP in several counties, but also held vast estates in Wales and was granted Kenilworth Castle and became Chamberlain of the Palatinate of Chester. So with the way this works, just to reiterate the point, let us say that the Privy Council had an order to implement. It would send its instructions and letters to Lords, Lieutenant and JPs, but also the relevant Lord on the Privy Council would meet with their tenants, landowners and clients in the normal run of things, and in the course of their discussion, they would make sure that that tenant, landowner, client, whatever, was implementing said instruction. The tenant client, whatever, would seek then to obey because they were the junior in status in the relationship and because they were bound by rules and ties of honour to obey. So you have this matrix of bureaucracy plus lordship making things happen. So when one of those two different dimensions of the matrix of power was absent, problems could occur. So you might know that the coverage of the Privy Council I just talked about didn't include much strength in the north of England, except the Palatinate of Chester. Here, the estate and office holding of the members of the court were much thinner on the ground, and this could prove to be a problem. So the medieval regional satrapies of Darcy, Percy and Neville continued to hold sway. These families had responded less well to the 1559 religious settlement. To try and compensate Northern offices, like Wardens of the Marches, were often given to Southerners. But it was an imperfect situation. It tended to annoy and alienate traditional lords, with pretty catastrophic results in the case of the Earls of Westmoreland and Northumberland. And without the depth of contacts and influence, the Wardens struggled to be fully effective. As I've said, central to the machinery of central government was the Privy Council then. It becomes very natural to talk about the Privy Council since its members, between 13 and 18 of them, were often the most powerful in the realm. Elizabeth's Privy Council was a remarkably stable group, so I guarantee you'll get bored of hearing of the likes of Cecil, Dudley and Walsingham in particular. But it is worth remembering that by the time of Elizabeth's accession, it was a relatively young institution, only really established in the 1540s with its own secretariat. The business of the council was dominated by the principal secretary, that being the ubiquitous Cecil from 1558 to 1571, and he then retained control anyway, becoming Lord Treasurer until his death in 1598. Cecil was also master of the ward of court, a lucrative post and one which also gave him great influence over the great families in the distribution of patronage. The point about this is that Cecil wielded influence and power for a number of reasons. In the modern idiom of government, 
we look at the offices of state of the government and their power comes almost entirely from their bureaucratic position. Cecil's power came from his relationship from the Queen, from his position on the Privy Council, from his control of patronage, his local positions and also his personal network of relationships. His brother-in-law, for example, was Nicholas Bacon, the Lord Keeper of the Seal. What holds true for Cecil holds true for many other great men. The later Tudor age is partly notable for the emergence of the concept of the state and government machinery associated with it. But do not be fooled. The role of status, landholding, affinity, patronage remained critical. The influence of patronage, just to note, was longer lasting than simply bidding for an award of a particular role or gift. The giving of the gift meant that the recipient owed service to the giver in return. It was the creation or continuance of a long-term client-master relationship. Thus, early modern administration can look very corrupt and venal to the modern eye. The principal secretary then, the leader of the Privy Council, had enormous discretion in his role. As Robert Cecil, William's son, put it, he had liberty to negotiate with discretion at home and abroad with friends and enemies in all matters of speech and intelligence. Which is great, and the Cecils used their discretion to the max. However, they remained responsible for all their decisions to the Queen. The place of the secretary is dreadful if he serve not a constant prince. All the authority of Tudor government came from the Queen and every action was taken in her name. And in the end, Elizabeth took the decisions. Advice for her decision was brought to her by the principal secretary again as go-between between the Queen and the Privy Council. Though Elizabeth did on occasion attend Privy Council meetings and take a direct part in debates, this was not the normal model. It's worth remembering then that it was not the job of the Privy Council to make policy. Repeat after me, it's not the job of the Privy Council to make policy. Making policy was the Queen's gig. The Privy Council purely provided advice and counsel. The Queen decided and the Council then implemented. OK, so we seem to be concluding that the Privy Council was the main centre of advice and guidance to the Queen and Elizabeth's reign. But really, nothing's ever as simple as that in Tudor times, is it now? That would be too easy. In fact, if we go back a bit, historians used to emphasise not institutions like the Privy Council, but all those personal and factional relationships. The Queen talking to her great men at court. Who was in, who was out? The Queen's personal relationship with people like Cecil and Dudley at court. Just like the good old medieval days when the monarch ruled his lands along with his tenants-in-chief. I miss those simple days. So, the history of Elizabethan England was all about well-heeled individuals rather than processes. And then, along came the historian Geoffrey Elton and his Tudor revolution in government, claiming that Cromwell presided over a comprehensive restructuring and rationalisation of the administration, and that a national bureaucratic government was the result in embryo, rather than the monarch taking advice at court. The main political issues 
were fought out at the Privy Council before policy was presented to the monarch for a decision. The court was marginalised. But Elizabeth was not so constrained or formalised. More recent historians have re-established the importance of court and personal relationships. Elizabeth was constantly taking advice from figures at court, sometimes publicly and formally in the presence chamber in front of everybody, but often privately and formally. Oh, Sussex, good to see you. Can I borrow you and your shell-like for a few minutes? That sort of thing. Those men might or might not be part of the Privy Council, but even if they were, Elizabeth was asking for their personal view, not that of the Privy Council. She called them aside because of her personal relationship with them. So, although without doubt the Privy Council was the principal formal advisory body, he was not the only source of advice for the Queen by any means. In addition, the idea of cabinet responsibility which we have now, i.e. adhering to a jointly agreed line of the Privy Council, whether you agreed with it or not, is alien to the Tudor Council. People served as individuals and held views as such. Frequently, the Privy Council disagreed with itself. Frequently, it disagreed with the Queen. And meanwhile, the court, therefore, remained the main political forum where the great men of the realm could argue and debate as they hung about waiting for Queenie to appear. But again, there was substantial overlap. Court and council can't be so easily separated. Members of the Privy Council were also members of court. How did court work, then? What was it like? Courtiers attended that court for many reasons. They might seek patronage, for the Queen and her senior advisers were the font of all patronage, and they were to be found at court. So patronage lay at the heart of court, but it was not the only reason for people going. The humanist tradition was strong in political writing, and it was the duty of the nobility to advise their prince. The tradition of service remained very strong amongst the nobility, and attendance at court was therefore a duty. And as we've covered, the court was the most important political forum if you wanted to get on or have some influence. Elizabeth quickly established protocols to which all courtiers were expected to conform. She was her father's daughter, deeply convinced by the authority and rights of the monarch, and eager to impress on all the awe-inspiring magnitude of her greatness. Her father had been helped in his day by his physical presence and charisma. Elizabeth had charisma aplenty, but recognised the critical importance of formality and the magnificence of display and ceremony, especially as a new queen, so there was plenty of that. The very geography of the royal palaces were designed for Elizabeth to both display her power and to reflect the relative influence of the courtier. Elizabeth wasn't a great builder of palaces, unlike her pa, and inherited all the palaces that she tended to use, so Richmond was her favourite, Windsor also allowed her the most privacy, and there was also Hampton Court, Greenwich, and of course at the heart of Westminster, there was Whitehall Palace, the largest palace in Europe at the time. The structure of the palaces was well established by the time Elizabeth came to the throne, and was oriented around the Queen's privy chambers. The closer you came to her privy chamber and bedroom, so your general smugness grew, because you were then closest to the throne, the font, the source of all power. First stage was to get to the great hall and guard rooms. 
and it was reasonably easy to get access to them as long as she could dress right, look and speak the part. The presence chamber was harder, stuffed full of ambitious courtiers, desperate to gain an audience and have a chat with the Queen. The presence chamber was dominated by one chair only, which was the throne, which stood underneath a canopy. These are pre-IKEA days, cheap manufactured furniture was a distant dream. The gorgeously dressed courtiers had to stand or sit on cushions. Everything about the presence chamber was designed to overawe and dazzle the visitor. Here is a description of the experience from a German granted an audience of the Queen later in the reign. We were led into the presence chamber, where we were placed well to the fore, so as better to behold the Queen. This apartment, like the others leading into this one, was hung with fine tapestries and the floor was strewn with straw or hay. Only where the Queen was to come out and up to her seat were carpets laid down worked in the Turkish knot. After we had waited a while here, somewhere between twelve and one, some men with white staffs entered from an inner chamber, and after them a number of lords of high standing, followed by the Queen, alone without escort, very straight and erect still, who sat down in the presence chamber upon a seat covered with red damask and cushions embroidered in gold thread. And so low was the chair that the cushions almost lay on the ground, and there was a canopy above fixed very ornately to the ceiling. It's a long quote, sorry about that but it does rather paint the picture. You might get a chance to address the Queen here, in front of everybody, but the formality was designed to emphasise grandeur, distance and authority. As one ambassador put it, that I might see her while she pretended not to see me. Elizabeth was not averse to using the public nature of the President's Chamber to make political points, and she used drama and theatre to great effect. There's a famous occasion when rumours were rife at court that Elizabeth was enjoying a bit of nookie with Robert Dudley. There was goss and general European outrage, since there was a long line of international suitors who thought very highly of their personal dignity and saw themselves as a far better catch than old Dudders. So one day, Cat Ashley, Elizabeth's longest standing companion, who you might remember from Thomas Seymour days, cast herself dramatically on her knees in front of the Queen in the presence chamber, in front of everyone. And she upbraided Elizabeth for her familiarity with Dudders and urged her to marry to scotch the horrid rumours. Often this is presented with some surprise. Historians recall that Elizabeth didn't bawl her out for such a breach of protocol, but simply explained she was doing nothing untoward with Robert. Get up, because you're making the place look untidy. And... I'll seriously consider marriage, so dinner fash yourself, hen. Historian Richard Rex is of a more suspicious frame of mind. He reckons Elizabeth had stitched this up with Cat beforehand, and this is all theatre, which is a convincing argument. It allowed Elizabeth to express herself freely. He points to a similar event when the Duke of Anjou came to court pursuing Elizabeth's hand. Robert Dudley stepped forward at one stage and demanded to know of the Queen if she was or was not a virgin. Now, I would say this would make for an awkward conversation in most situations and result in the cutting off of knees in a royal situation. But, of course, here it allowed Elizabeth to reassure the French about her relationship with Dudders. It was another fruity bit of theatre. 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Beyond the presence chamber, then, lay the Queen's privy chambers, and here things got serious. The privy chambers were where Elizabeth enjoyed hours of leisure and privacy. Such as she ever achieved, she was very rarely completely alone, but attended by the mainly female privy household. This was also where Elizabeth ate, and she ate at irregular times of day, as it happens. Meanwhile, her royal court, employing over 2,000 people, was feeding vast quantities. In one year, 1,250 oxen, 8,300 sheep, and so on. Elizabeth ate reasonably moderately, and the court knew when she was eating and not to be really disturbed, because she was accompanied by musicians who made music while she nibbled. The privy chambers were protected by a yeoman guard of 146, and access to it was jealously guarded by an usher of the Black Rod. Only the most favoured or important made it through. High-ranking members of court, privy councillors, well-favoured ambassadors... If you were accorded access this close to the Queen, you were in clover, politically speaking, and able to provide your noble duty of service and counsel. On the other hand, losing access was the kiss of political death. A later favourite of the Queen was the Earl of Essex, who one day fell from favour, and he then complained bitterly at being excluded from what he called her near access a bit like my hound, when he's barked too much outside the shed and been removed. Essex was scratching at the door, allowed only into the presence chamber, not the privy chamber. The route to the privy chamber at various palaces was usually also richly decorated and designed to continue the visitor awesomeness effect. The privy chamber at Whitehall was dominated by that famous picture by Holbein of the full Tudor dynasty, Grandad, Dad and all. As the visitors approached the privy chambers, great effort to awe continued. The privy gallery at Whitehall, the privy chambers to the presence chamber, boasted a ceiling marvellously wrought in stone with gold. However well in you were, though, you were still not quite part of the favoured few until you reached the inner sanctum, the Queen's bedchamber. Here, 14 female assistants looked after Elizabeth's 700 gowns and her jewellery, and very few official visitors made it here. This was where Elizabeth could take refuge from court. Only people like Cecil or Dudley, the very most favoured, made it this far. During some of the summer months, the Queen got away from the claustrophobia of her palaces, upped sticks, and set out on the road on a summer progress, accompanied by 400 carts and 2,400 pack horses. It was a way for Elizabeth to escape the heat of the summer in smelly old London, and also a way for her to see and be seen by her subjects. Though it has to be said, she stuck to the south and east. The glories north of the Trent and the Humber remained unvisited, so she missed out on the most beautiful parts of her realm. It was her loss. Obscurely, it was also a way to show favour by descending on the homes of her nobles, doing much honour and conferring much status. I say obscurely, because having the royal court descend on you was the kind of life event that had the bank manager reaching for his tub of Valium. It cost a fortune. 
The first person to be visited by Elizabeth in this way in August 1569 was the Earl of Arundel, who at the time held Henry VIII's Palace of Nonsuch and thought he was in with a good chance to marry Elizabeth. So he pushed the boat out good and proper, setting the standard for all those that followed. A chronicler remarked, It cost him 10,000 marks at the least by report. Wherefore afterward, he was constrained to sell a great part of his lands. For this precedent, the Earl had many curses of many. Basically, Arundel set the bar way too high for many people to limbo under. Fortunately, if that's the word, the um, excreta of all those extra people made a long stay impossible. I'm told that the problem of courtiers weighing up against the wall of various palaces became so intense and the rules so blithely ignored that often crosses were painted on the walls. The principle was that no one would wee on such a Christian symbol. By golly. But you know, when you've got to go, doing the devil's work may be required. The young queen brought a new sense of energy to the court and her own style of doing the business of politics. Elizabeth was a great lover of music, of dancing and of plays. She was herself a talented musician, but played mainly in quiet moments in her privy chambers with her ladies-in-waiting. She was apparently not keen to play in front of men. The Venetian ambassador was a little sour about all this goings-on at court. The Queen's daily amusements are musical performances and other entertainments, and she takes marvellous pleasure in seeing people dance. They are intent on amusing themselves and on dancing until after midnight. The ambassador was not impressed and saw not artistic expression, but instead levities and unusual licentiousness. But Elizabeth loved to dance, and loved to dance the most energetic of dances, the galliard, which I understand has quite a lot of hopping around included, leaps in the air, and a certain amount of complex variation went on. So much so that Elizabeth might practice seven or eight times in the morning to make sure she was on point come the evening's entertainment. And who was her favourite partner in the dance? Why, Robert Dudley, of course, who had an equally fine leg and danced, after the Florentine style, with a high magnificence that astonished beholders. There is a lovely pic on the website of Robin Liz dancing the Volta. Robert does look like a bit of a plonker, and I'm sure the Queen has three legs, but they look as though they're having a hoot well enough. However, the general impression can be misleading. At heart, Elizabeth saw to it that courtiers behaved themselves as much as she was able to police. Fun should not become drunkenness, flirtation not to become sexual licence. She had her reputation to look after, and the court was more conservative in behaviour than might be thought at first glance. Now, I'm not quite sure how I got into Dudley's legs when we are on the sober and indeed serious business of court politics. But let us take the opportunity of the mention of flirting to talk about Elizabeth's political style. Elizabeth was essentially something of a flirt and a lover of banter. A courtier, Christopher Hatton, said of her, The Queen did fish for men's souls and had so sweet a bait that none could escape her network. She flirted outrageously, and not just with her foreign suitors, but with her courtiers. Not just Dudley, though particularly with Dudley, of course. She gave pet names to her leading courtiers. Cecil was Sir Spirit, 
Hatton was lids, Dudley was eyes, and Walsingham her moor. God-awful nicknames, it must be said, although coming from a podcaster known as Bogbrush in his youth, that may be harsh. But you see the thing, it's flirtatious. I could hardly see Theresa May or Elizabeth II or indeed Mary I doing any of that. Now there might be a straightforward emotional reason for this. Elizabeth had as much interest in sex as the next woman, but it presented particular problems for her. She clearly enjoyed the company of men and flirting was simply a way of partly scratching that itch. But it also helped deal with another awkward problem of the Queen's gender, because, as has often been noted, she was of course the wrong gender for the job of an early modern monarch. Oops and all that, given that God, of course, handed down the governance of the human race to men. Elizabeth's flirting and her very obvious and charismatic presence at the centre of court life was all wrapped up in language of courtly love. This was really useful because it was a shared, understood language where noble males were to seek the favour of a woman. Usually some unobtainable damsel in a chivalric romance, but hey, a queen would be a decent substitute. The conventions of court sparked a short-lived revival for Arthurian legends during Elizabethan times, which faded again soon after. This handy way out embedded itself in court culture all the way through Elizabeth's reign, looking slightly odd later in the age as she grew older. Philip Sidney, the poet and courtier, provided a perfect example when he died in 1586 from a Frenchman's blade fighting for the cause of Protestantism. He was described as the flower of courtesy, who in his life gave a perfect life in his conversation to lead men to virtue, that by his example they might both learn to fear God, to glory in sincerity, to abound in loyalty, and be careful lovers of their native country. It is a culture that Elizabeth must have found handy. I have always thought there is downside to the culture of banter, it is quite clear that when you played or flirted with Queen Elizabeth, you played with fire. Elizabeth had a temper on her, and all sorts felt the sharp edge of her tongue, especially the ladies of her privy household. Although the ladies of her privy household enjoyed little or no political influence, many courtiers found it helpful to cultivate them, if that isn't too horticultural a word, because it was important to know what mood the Queen was in, before taking to her your most prized scheme, or went to grovel for some piece of advancement. But she also deployed her temper swiftly and comprehensively when her courtiers, however favoured, stepped over the line. On one occasion, for example, a courtier threw his petition in front of her as she walked through the presence chamber to get her attention. Elizabeth had him thrown in jail and left to rot. The example, though, shows that while Elizabeth could react with fury for personal reasons, just as often it was to preserve her position as monarch and her dignity and her prerogative. Elizabeth had a lot of enormously rich courtiers, all seeking to become as overmighty as possible, and she used language and sarcasm to cut the over-presumptuous down to size. Dudley is a pretty good example. Clearly highly favoured, he could not resist stepping over the line on occasion, and on occasion Elizabeth could not resist taking out her frustration on him, slightly unfairly. 
The following incident, it seems to me, falls into that unfortunately common category of banter, which is as much concealed aggression as it is humour. So, picture the scene. We're in a presence chamber and a new Spanish ambassador, Guzman de Silva, has arrived. Elizabeth was cross with Dudley at the time, and so she called him over. She turned to the ambassador. Do you know this gentleman? she asked. It was so long since I saw him, de Silva responded, playing the game. I might well have forgotten him. What? cried Elizabeth. Is he so presumptuous that he fails to wait upon you every day? OK, you might take this as a gentle mockery for Dudley's position and ambition, but it's also a bit cutting. A second example speaks more to Elizabeth's defence of prerogative. She believed strongly that she had two bodies, a body natural, her life and role as a woman, and her body as a monarch and it was very important not to mix or confuse the two. Banter maybe as a woman, don't tread on my prerogative. So, Dudley was fishing to get his own placeman into the role of Black Rod Usher, so that his access to the Queen would be secure, and he could also stop other folks getting in front of the Queen if he didn't want them to. But the current incumbent appealed to the Queen that access to her was in danger of being controlled. It was time for a bit of strip-tearing. Elizabeth exploded at Dudley. By God's death, my lord, I have wished you well, but my favour is not so locked up in you that others shall not participate thereof. For I have many servants unto whom I have and will, at my pleasure, confer my favour, and likewise resume the same. And if you think to rule here, I will take a course to see you forthcoming. I will have here but one mistress and no master. That leaves us, I think, nicely positioned, legs gathered under us like lithe panthers to leap to the next stone in the Elizabeth story, the role of gender in her reign, the succession, and all the fun of the marriage fair. That will be in two weeks' time. Thank you for listening, gentlemen and gentlewomen, and have a wonderful fortnight full of fun, laughter and fashion. Truly hydrated skin, Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O S E A MALibu.com code SUMMER.